Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Hey, everyone. Before we get into tonight's video, I want to let you all know about my podcast. Really, it's no different than what you're listening to here. However, if you listen to The Graveyard Shift with Mr. Davis over on Spotify or Anchor, both those links will be down in the description, you can listen to just the audio. You don't have to worry about running a video in the background on your phone or your laptop and running down your battery. If you just want the audio, it's there for you over at Anchor FM or on Spotify. Graveyard Shift with Mr. Davis. Link is in the top of the description. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hadn't seen my father in five years when he called me yesterday evening. I didn't even know he had my number. And when he explained that he was in town and needed to see me right away if possible, I almost refused. Growing up, he'd be gone months at the time, usually off on some bizarre get-rich-quick scheme or insane adventure, and a couple of times for temporary commitment in a mental hospital until he got censored enough to be deemed fit for release. Either way, I'd counted his absence the last few years as a blessing, and I wasn't sure I wanted to let him back into my life after all this time. The thing that made me hesitate and ultimately agree to meet was how he sounded. When I was young, he would get cheerfully, almost aggressively manic. He had all these plans and ideas and endless confidence on how he was going to succeed at this or that. Be rich, be famous, gain some knowledge or insight that had eluded lesser men before him. When he was like that, he was more than a little terrifying. And if you tried to talk him down, it usually turned on you. His smiling enthusiasm quickly became a sullen frown, and the words you meant out of love and concern were held up as evidence of some kind of betrayal. Over those years, I learned to be on my guard and choose my words carefully when my father's voice sounded too happy or bright. But last night, he sounded the opposite. His voice was dry and tight with stress and fatigue, like a thin ghost welling up from the core of him, a core so fragile that the slightest bump might split him in two. And there was no confidence there, only a mournful species of dread and the weight of each word being pushed across to me with effort and foreboding. When I asked him what was going on, what was wrong, he paused for a moment and then reiterated that I needed to meet him and that he would make everything clear. I had a flash of when I was 13 that made me grip my phone harder. Us standing in the kitchen and me telling him that he shouldn't go, that we needed him at home and that Mama was getting sicker. When he turned toward me, his eyes had been bright and strange and I noticed he'd picked up a knife from the counter. It was only for a moment and... Then he seemed to realize what he had done. Putting the knife down, he'd given me a smile and walked outside. After that, I swore I'd never try to stop him again, and if he ever wanted help, he'd need to find it somewhere else. 
Remembering that, I almost refused and hung up. But he seemed to sense that. Started begging me to meet him somewhere public. The parking lot of the library downtown, maybe. He sounded scared enough that I offered to have him come to my house, but he quickly refused. Said he couldn't come to where I lived or worked or anything else connected to me. That it wasn't safe. But that he did need to meet with me. Because I was the only one that he could trust. I began rooting around in my desk drawers while he talked, and when I found the folding knife there, I slipped it into my pocket. Then, swallowing my own misgivings and fear, I said yes. My father wasn't as I expected to find him. Since his last disappearance five years before, I'd assumed he'd probably developed into some kind of homeless crazy person as he continued to spiral down. Talking to him on the phone, I was imagining a dirty, bearded man draped in thrift store cast-offs and an aura of crazy that baked off him like heat. Instead, he looked much like I remembered him from the last time I'd seen him. Neatly dressed, with a small, well-kempt mustache and hair that was long but clean. He might have been waiting to go out to dinner at one of the restaurants downtown, if not for the oddity of waiting by the fountain outside the public library instead of two streets over where there were more lights and people and reasons to be out in the night. Parking nearby, I got out quickly. I didn't want him coming over to my car, much less getting in, so I was better off going to him. Patting the knife in my pocket, I waved to him with my other hand as I approached, trying to keep my face and voice neutral. Hey, Dad. His smile was awkward as he ducked his head into a small nod. Hey, son. I, uh... Listen. Thank you for coming. I I know it's been some time. I gave a small laugh that sounded bitter in my own ears. (laughs) Yeah, you... You could say that. So, what... Do you have any car trouble on your way over here? I blinked at him. Uh, no, I don't think so. Why? Looking relieved, he waved my question away. I'll explain that to you. Why I asked, I mean. But first, I need to explain to you where I've been and why I haven't come around in so long, and why I called you now. I stopped a few feet from him, and now he gestured for me to come sit with him on the fountain's edge. Coughing awkwardly, I shook my head. No, I'm I'm good where I'm at, but... Yeah, sure. Tell me. He frowned slightly at that and seemed to argue when his face fell slightly and he gave another ducking nod. Okay, well... You know how I used to be. Always looking for something, whether to make more money or find something special. I gave a small snort. I remember Mama working double shifts and taking care of us because you were never there. My father seemed to wince slightly at that. You're right, of course. I wasn't a good husband or father, and I see now that my mistakes, my weaknesses, were leading me down a path that... Well, I'm not in a good place. I felt a flicker of anger stir in my chest. I'm not giving you money if that's what this is about. His eyes widened. Money? <laughs> no, no, I I have money. Plenty of money. That's part of the reason why I needed to meet with you. He glanced around. Are you sure you won't come sit with me on the fountain? 
please? Sighing, I looked down at my shoes and shook my head. Dad, what the fuck is this? Are you off your meds again? No. This isn't me being crazy. I just... Just listen, okay? Can you just hear me out? I wanted to say more, but I bit the words back and just gave a nod. Okay. Good. So, when I left the last time, it was because I'd found a way into some new circles. People that trade in very specialized goods and knowledge, among other things. I know you think your old man is a kook, but I've actually gotten very good at smelling bullshit. So imagine how excited I was when I decided that these people were legit. There was money to be made, sure, but more than that. It felt like my chance to join an exclusive club that really understands how everything works. How what works? He gave me an exasperated frown as he gestured to the parking lot around us. <laughs> everything. Todd, there's so much more to this world than what they'll tell you. This world and others. And the people in power, the people in the know, they're the ones gatekeeping. You find something out you shouldn't, they put you in a loony bin or disappear you. The only way past their gates is to become one of them. To be of service. For me, that meant being a broker of rare goods. Sniffling, I took a step back. Are you a drug mule? A dr no, God. Look, there are people dealing with things that most people can't even comprehend. Invaluable items, information, those kinds of things. But they sometimes have to be bought and sold, right? And they look for certain kinds of people to handle that business for them. I raised an eyebrow. Someone like you. Because you're so reliable. My father snorted. <laughs> Touche. But you have to understand, they have very specific criteria. Ideally, they want people without ties or that are going to be seen by others as unreliable, even crazy. It makes it easier if they ever tell someone they shouldn't or need to be disappeared. Okay. But again... Why is someone going to trust you, or someone like you, with their priceless shit? His expression hardened slightly, and I wasn't sure if he looked angry or proud. Because of as big as a piece of shit I was to you and your mom, I've always been predictable. I've always gone after money and the things that really mattered to me, and to those things, I'm loyal. Dependable. He sniffed. So, to those people who have plenty of cash and secrets to share, I'm just what they're looking for. Nodding, I glanced at my watch. It was already after eight. Okay, fine. What does this have to do with me? I'm getting to that. He paused, then peering into the deepening twilight for a moment before looking back to me. Four months ago, I was offered a job, picking up a small artifact in Portland and smuggling it to London. Customs isn't really an issue for something like that. Even if they found it, they wouldn't know what it was. But if someone on the inside knows you're carrying it, well, that's where the real danger is supposed to come in. Waving his hand, he went on. Anyway, I'm on the way to drop off in Bayswater when I get a call. 
The transaction has been delayed. They want me to hold onto the object for an unspecified amount of time. I'm about to object when they say they'll pay me an extra five grand a day and imply that doing this favor was a way of proving myself, of progressing toward the real inner circles. So I said I'd keep it safe. Glancing around again, he pulled out a tightly folded purple silk handkerchief from his jacket pocket. Unfolding it, he held it out for me to see. It was hard to say for sure in the amber tinge of the parking lot's lights, but I thought he was holding a small but thick silver hook. I glanced up at him and then back to the hook. It was clearly well made, looking both strong and delicate with carvings along its side and a ring of silver at the base that looked designed for a string or a chain. Still, how was it special or worth a bunch of money or trouble? That's when he told me where the hook had come from. I met a guy once a few years back that told me that as a species we are now at the pinnacle of humanity's information technology, more ignorant than we have ever been since the early days of man. The problem is accessibility, he said. When you make so much available at the click of a button, it's overwhelming. People don't know what to believe, but they yearn to believe something, so they find one thing and believe it without question, disregarding everything else and complacent in their arrogance and their ignorance. That idea of the general population, it's shared and cultivated by the people I work for. I've seen pictures of it hanging in offices and homes that date back hundreds of years. All variations of the same picture. It's a man surrounded by mounds of books. They're to his left, to his right, and they tower over him. He's even sitting on a pile of books. And in his hand, he's clasping a book so tightly that you might think it's a life preserver. He's squinting from behind a pair of thick glasses. And it's clear from his expression, at least in the best versions of this tableau, that he's a fool but a self-satisfied one. For all the books around him are the same, and when they have titles at all, they are nonsense. They call these pictures, or scene, they represent the blind scholar. For the handful that aren't blind, well, the world is much deeper and stranger than you've been taught. It's filled with many things that you might call fantasy or delusion, but I assure you, they're very real. Magic, real magic, true terror and wonder there. And things that aren't human, but have knowledge and culture far deeper and older than our own. They're sometimes mentioned in superstitions or folk tales, of course, but we're all too smart and modern for those now, aren't we? One of these things is called a Nathjäger. It has other names as it exists everywhere to one extent or another, but I learned about it from an Austrian woman who was raised by her grandparents in Germany. They lived at the edge of the Black Forest and would always tell tales of the Nachtjäger, or Night Hunter. She said it wasn't just a fairy tale to keep her away from the woods, but a real danger that she saw play out a couple of times growing up. Times when locals would go missing and be found later, hanging from trees with most of their skin gone. Because the Nachtjäger is true to its name. It is a hunter. And while it is terribly strong and fast, it relies more on intellect and cunning when it goes out to look for game. Some of the stories talk of a lonely traveler meeting a Nachtjäger on the road. They think it's a chance encounter with another 
man or woman, at least until they see their shim. Uh, she said it means shield or umbrella. Maybe it means both. The Nachiegar has two large wings, skinless and terrible like the bones of a bat, but rather than spread up for the flight, they curl down to the ground. When they wish to appear human, they can tuck them against their back, but when they unfurl them, they can cover their entire form with their span, as though they were in a bony cage or hiding beneath the ribs of an umbrella. This is part of why they hunt, you see. When they meet an unsuspecting wanderer, or they corner someone in the woods, they fall upon them, use their tools upon them, cutting long strips of flesh from them while they still live. The Nachiager licks their stolen skin and cures it almost in an instant. It becomes sticky, more durable, covered in a million little crystals left behind by the slime of the thing's tongue. These crystals, they act like biophotonic structures and a peacock's feather but they don't just diffuse light into a colorful display. They bend the light, and when the strips of flesh are applied to the thing's wings, it can shift and shudder its stolen skin in a way that its next victim will not see or hear it when it comes. Just, just stop. My father looked at me confused. What's wrong? I couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> What's wrong? You're telling me about some forest monster that skins people and uses their skin for its fucked up bat wings? So, what, it can turn invisible? His expression darkened. Arrogance and ignorance walk hand in hand. You're better than that. No, I'm so tired of your haughty, crazy bullshit. You're the same as when I was a kid. You always know better. You were too good for your life, for your family, for me. You expected us to kiss your ass when you grazed us with your presence for a few months, but I heard the nights you cried to mom and begged her to take you back, promised to change, to take your meds, to not leave again. I snorted. <laughs> and look at you now, still the same crazy fuck. Face red, he stood up and shook the silver hook before wrapping it back into the purple cloth. I'm not crazy. This? This belongs to one of those things. It was taken ten years ago and has been shuttled around ever since. No one keeps it long because the Nachiegar always comes looking for it. I didn't find that out until I started questioning why I was getting paid to hold on to it for so long. They wanted to try and trap one, using me as bait. I rolled my eyes. <laughs> so what? You're being hunted by this thing, and you come here and drag me into it? <laughs> Thanks, Pop. He shook his head. No, you don't understand. They can't cross water. Can't even approach you from behind if your back is to water. The chance of something following me here all the way from Europe, I don't even see how that's possible. I stared at him, my stomach clenched tight with anxiety. I didn't believe him, of course, but... It didn't sound crazy, either. Not exactly. Maybe someone really was after him, and he just was dressing it up as a bunch of spooky bullshit. Okay. I'm about to walk away now. I don't know what you're involved with, and I don't want to know, but don't contact me at five million. I don't know what the fuck... He took a step forward, and then glanced around before stepping back to the fountain. Five million dollars. 
I have it in a bank account in New York. If you take this, it's yours. I can give you all the information. You can verify the money and the transfer before you even take the artifact. He waved his hand on your cell phone or whatever. Fuck you. What is this? Some stolen thing you're trying to dump on me? No thanks. I have a decent life and I don't need you fucking it up. My father was growing pale now, and I could see a bead of sweat on his forehead as he leaned forward. Ten million. It's all I have. I don't care what you do with it after. The man who hired me to obtain it is already dead. I'm gone. Don't contact me again. I started to turn away when something stopped me. Maybe the softest, muffled music of metal ringing against metal. Whatever it was, my father heard it too and his eyes went wide. God. It's here. The night next to him rippled and then unfurled, shifting impossibly as two flashes of silver lashed out, hooking into his face and chest. He began to scream, but in a moment he was yanked forward, and then he was... He was gone. But no, not gone. I couldn't see him anymore, but I could hear his muffled cries, barely audible but still close by, though my eyes told me I was alone. Shuddering, I reached in my pocket and pulled out the knife, unfolding the blade before raising it up in my trembling hand. What? Let him go. There was no response, and the sounds of my father had grown silent as well. Was I still sure that the thing that had him was still in front of me? Heart pounding, I started looking in every direction, straining for any noise, searching for any disturbance in the air or on the ground. Nothing. I was helpless and blind out there, and for all I knew, it could be coming up behind me right now. A thought occurred to me, and I looked at the fountain. Dad said they can't cross water or sneak up on you if your back was to water. Terrified I was walking into the monster, I darted over to the fountain and put the back of my legs to the marble lip of its basin. When the fountain idea occurred to me, it traveled with a darker twin thought, but I pushed it aside. I needed to worry about surviving and trying to get my dad free of... A slit of darkness appeared in the air before me. It was as though... A curtain had been slightly parted, a small window into the world behind the world. In truth, I was looking into the shadowy interior of the creature's shield, its umbrella. I could just make out my father's terrified face on the ground and its long, clawed feet. A silver chain was wrapped tight around his neck, and his cheek was painted red from the hook buried deep in there. His body was harder to see, but in the glimpse I could make out strips of raw meat where his skin had been flayed away. I saw all this in a second before my gaze was pulled away by something moving toward me higher in that dark. I could see its eyes. Milky and large, they glowed softly in the shadow of his bone wings and stolen flesh. I thought I could make out a large hooked nose and a pair of thin lips, but it was hard to say, and I was too terrified to look closer scared to do anything other than stare and hold out the small knife in front of me like a protective talisman. 
It was then that it chose to speak. Why do you defend this thief? Any other time, hearing the deep, intelligent voice coming from this impossible monster would have provoked a thousand thoughts and reactions, but not then. Fear of that depth and purity strips away any curiosity or wonder. It leaves only living or dying and the truth that lives within that choice. I... He's my father. I love him. Your father is a thief and a liar. I swallowed and gave a nod. I know. I'm sorry. But you have your hook back. Can't you let him live? I'm sorry he stole and lied. I thought I saw the creature's lips twitch upward in their shade. He did not lie to me. Frowning, I did lean forward slightly now, despite my fear. What do you mean? I was here while you talked. He pretended he didn't know I was still hunting him, that I was close. He knew. That's why he put his back to the fountain. Encouraged you to do the same. I leaned back again, the edge of the fountain digging into my legs painfully. But he said you can't cross water. As much he said, a distortion of the truth. We cannot approach another near water if we have to cross it to reach them. It's a child's trick and offers no real hindrance at all. But you're not a child, and your father has betrayed you. I, I, I don't understand. A soft, coarse laugh, and then... <laughs> I think you do. His attempt to get you to join him at this fountain wasn't a father's love. He didn't want you taken before he could hand off his burden. I could try and turn my anger towards you. He gave a harsh noise that might have been a groan or a growl. As though I am a dumb animal to be fooled or dissuaded. I saw the chain running from my father's neck jerk tighter. He is the only fool here. His eyes narrowed. Or am I wrong? A small part of me wanted to argue. To deny what it said and defend the man that I should be able to trust. I should be able to love. But this strange, terrible creature was being honest. And in that moment, peering into a horrifying world, I didn't know and didn't want to know. So was I. I dropped the knife. Take him. The creature gave a small, smiling nod, and then the night closed in again, leaving me alone. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The drone was rolled into my tech lab on a gurney, like a patient entering the ER. 
The two-person retrieval team were clad in hazmat gear. This made me question my safety. They were still wet from the decontamination showers. Funny, I thought they were supposed to take the hazmat suits off before they washed. Thought that was the whole point. But what did I know? I was just the drone tech. So, what exactly happened? The two pushed their way out of the room in a hurry. On the other side of the door, I could hear an upchuck. One of them fell to the ground with a loud thump. An alarm rang and more men in hazmat gear ran past the door and carried them off in a rush. That wasn't a good sign. I literally looked over at the drone. It was KX-6, or Kix, as I like to call it. There was something off about it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what. Fearing contamination, I grabbed my scanner and waved it over kicks at arm's length. There was a bit of residual radiation on it, but it was only slightly above background. It was safe. I glanced at the doors. The hallway had gone quiet again. I couldn't silence the whisper of dread in my head. Best I could do was get to work. Alright, Kix. Let's check your databanks. Even though I deemed Kix safe, I still used lead-coated gloves to turn it over to access the storage banks. That's where I encountered my first hiccup of the evening. That's where I encountered my first hiccup of the evening. The access panel was melted shut. Something had struck kicks down in the most perfectly inconvenient way. Whether it was intentional or coincidental, I couldn't really tell. It walked the perfect tightrope between the two. Still, it was hard not to speculate when the rest of kicks was in decent condition. If it was an intentional hit, then it was clear the attacker didn't want us assessing the storage banks but it also meant they weren't knowledgeable enough to know that there was an alternate route if one removed the ocular components. Sorry, buddy, I whispered as I twisted off the lens with practiced expertise. I could take these drones apart and put them back together in my sleep. Still, I put each component on my desk in the exact order they came out, in ordinance with regulations. They were labeled and inspected for faults. It wasn't until I twisted the last component off that I met the second hiccup. Some sort of viscous liquid oozed out of the storage bank compartment. It wasn't a lot by any means, maybe a tablespoon at most, but it spooked me enough to send me staggering back and reach for the scanner again. Not radioactive. Huh. The liquid was vermilion, not blood. I knew right away it couldn't be blood. Blood isn't translucent like this stuff was, not to mention its consistency was way off. No, this was something different, something like a mix of jello and ink. Something that, as I quickly discovered when trying to take a sample, was repelled by humans. It was like trying to stick two of the same poles of a magnet together. My hands couldn't go near it. I felt a force pushing back whenever I tried. In turn, it slithered away from whichever direction I approached. I did the only thing I could think of. I used both hands to corral it into a jar. I couldn't close the lid because I couldn't bring my hands close enough, but I'd leave that to the scientists. I was here for the drone. 
With the storage banks now clean off the strange liquid, I was able to pry out the three storage drives. Kix was outfitted with a main drive, backup, and secondary redundancy. Its manufacturers claimed to leave nothing to chance, although I questioned the decision of having all drives located in the same spot. I'm no engineer, but I would have put the second redundancy elsewhere on the drone, just in case. Alright, Kix, show me what happened to you. The main drive had a few minor scorch marks on it, so I plugged it in without expecting much from it and got what I expected. Something had fried the system beyond salvage. Probably the same thing that had sealed the access panel shut. Thankfully, the main backup drive didn't suffer the same fate. I cracked my knuckles and got to work compiling the data. The brass had explicitly asked for telemetrics first. Yes, I know how that sounds. Suits don't know how this kind of stuff works. What they meant was that they wanted all atmospheric data leading up to and following the loss of the drone signal. I remember thinking it was strange not to prioritize the video recordings, but it was their call. I suppose they'd seen the footage live. Compiling the data didn't take too long. Compared to the video files, these were quick to transfer and upload. I received no reply when I sent them to the bosses. While I thought that was a little strange, I had enough on my plate that I didn't let it bother me. Next were the videos that hadn't been requested. I had a hunch the bosses would want the drone back in operational state as soon as possible, but all the same, I transferred the video files and hit play. Call it natural human curiosity. There were hours upon hours of footage of the drone being outfitted, doing test flights, and even being serviced by myself and my colleagues. I skipped ahead until I landed on what I was looking for, the footage leading up to the signal loss. I lied to myself saying I needed to see what happened to properly diagnose the issues with the drone. The truth was I already knew what was wrong. It needed a new main drive and a replacement for the bottom casing. I should maybe point out here that I do not have clearance to see what's inside the restricted zone where the drone was damaged. The footage I was about to hit play on was essentially a manila envelope with the words top secret on it. And since it was left out in the open for anyone to see, I hit play. Kicks hovered toward the periphery of the restricted zone. It was a wall of dense fog that somehow hadn't spread or moved since it had initially rolled in. To the naked eye, it was made of a dark rainbow, just like an oil spill. The color was visible at certain angles, grayish in others. Readings showed it was comprised of a spectrum of colors far outside the scope of the human eye. Some colors, it was theorized, were visible to certain species of animal. Not that there were any around to witness it. Animals had gone through great lengths to avoid the restricted zone. Weeks before the fog, migratory birds changed course, adding days to their flights home. Fish in the lakes around the periphery beached to themselves, creating a wave outward from the zone. Squirrels, rabbits, foxes, deers, hell, even frogs fled, causing a few accidents on the neighboring highways. And let me remind you, this all happened before the fog, before there was a restricted zone. Thinking back, I remember a news report a month before it happened. Trees in the area experienced an early bloom. They theorized it was the good weather we'd been having. 
In hindsight, I wonder if the plants, being immobile, were trying to escape and spread the only way they were able to, by sending their seeds out into the world before it was too late. I don't know. Maybe that's crazy talk. What matters is the animals seemed to sense something we didn't, and once the fog bloomed, none of them wanted to come back. They tried bringing animals into the restricted zone to perform tests. They tried cows, dogs, sheep, all sorts of creatures. None of them wanted anything to do with the fog. They'd run away scared, tails tucked between their legs. Some even put their own lives in danger in the process of escape. I saw a video, yeah, another restricted file, so sue me, of a horse stampeding across toward the mist and suddenly banking so fast and so violently. It snapped its own neck. It snapped its own goddamn neck. It was like a horror movie. A visceral twist and crack. Down it fell. It's still there, you know. Because of its speed, because it was distracted, it's the closest any living thing has gone to the restricted zone. No one wanted to retrieve it, so it's still there, decomposing. No, not even. It's more like baking in the sunlight, like gum on the pavement. You need maggots and microbes and all sorts of living organisms to break down a body after death. There's not a goddamn fly on that carcass. It's just laying there, turning leathery, oozing, baking. It's it's awful. I don't like thinking about it. I don't know why I'm talking about it now. Kicks, right. Back to kicks. Kix was hovering at the edge of the restricted zone, where he remained for a good while. My best guess is that they were getting all the data they could before proceeding into the fog. And then, finally, Kix headed toward the wisps of the murky rainbow. This was it. This was the first time I'd ever get to see what was beyond the fog. To say it was... Anticlimactic would be an understatement until the implications set in. You see, there was nothing beyond the fog except more fog. It was an empty expanse in which anyone could lose their orientation in the blink of an eye. Thankfully, Kix was controlled from outside the periphery, so questions of up or down, north or south, weren't much of an issue. At first, I thought, the emptiness was due to the fog, and visibility was limited to a few feet at best, but then they turned kicks around, and I saw a hazy image of the field several meters away. So it wasn't that dense. It was that empty. That's when I saw the sharp edge of the world, right where the fog met the ground, all the way down as far as Kick's camera could pan. It was like something had eaten a chunk out of Earth's crust. I could see the striations on the Earth, layers hiding millennia of history like the pages of a book or the rings of a tree. The cut was razor sharp, sliced with surgical precision. That's when I finally understood the horrors of the empty expanse. It wasn't that the fog was dense. It was that everything else was just... gone. To where, I couldn't say. 
I became vaguely aware of a noise behind me. I pulled my eyes from the screen and realized I'd been white-knuckling the desk and clenching my jaw. I was hunched uncomfortably, body tense like prey hiding from a predator. Slowly, I turned to my chair, only to find Kix's propellers were puttering. Well, that certainly wasn't normal. I pulled myself over and hit the off button, and then wheeled myself back to my desk. I admit, this time, I hesitated to watch the video feed. Something about it had left me with a primal need to run. Fear had left a scar, a once-bidden-twice-shy kind of deal. But somehow curiosity got the best of me. I took a deep breath and resumed. Kicks continued into the fog, which seemed to undulate on its own rather than drift through air currents. The movements looked, I wouldn't say alive, but purposeful in a strange way. I think the best comparison I could make is a documentary on squids I saw years ago. I distinctly remember a scene where there's a feeding frenzy around a ship. There were far more squids than researchers anticipated, and they were afraid the ship might capsize. They had cameras under the hull recording the frenzy, and I remember the squids rapidly changing color, flashing blues and reds and beige as they attacked the prey relentlessly. What I remember most of all was how they changed colors all at the same time and possibly coordinated. A blanket of red, a wave of blue, then they'd all turn in the same direction and shift red again and so on and so forth. They were perfectly synchronized, like they were a single entity. I remember sitting on the edge of my seat, incredulous, gawking, and a little afraid. That's how I felt now, looking at the fog and the rainbow of colors from the inside changed in unison in patterns as though in a language beyond human comprehension. It had nothing to do with the angle of the sunlight. The particles themselves were shifting together, almost sentinently. I thought of those squids and the fear in the researchers' eyes as their boat was rocked back by the feeding frenzy as though they knew there was more food inside. I could have sworn I heard Kick's engines whirring, and I looked to make sure it was still off. It was. Kix was still laying on the gurney right where I'd left it. Or was it a few inches to the right? No, I told myself. I was just creeping myself out. Kix hadn't moved. Kix couldn't move. Not on its own. Not with its storage devices out and plugged into my computer, and not while it was off. I wiped a bead of sweat from my brow and looked at my screen again. Kix proceeded through the rainbow of colors, still blinking from one hue to the next like they were having a conversation. And then it came upon a really odd sight. There were membranes stretching across the screen from one end of the fog to the other. They looked sticky and wet, coated in something red, not unlike the liquid I'd found on Kix earlier. They were arched, close to one another but not touching, and smaller finger-light tendrils of red stretched from one to the next. It took me a while to figure out what I was looking at, and I only did because Kix flew a few kilometers along the route, following them to an electricity pylon. They were electric cables. 
Somehow, though the ground and trees and water were all gone, somehow the pylon and its cables remained mostly intact. Kix descended toward the base of the pylon, likely to see what it was standing on. My heart thumped so loud it sounded like rotor blades whirring to life. Down it went, flowing a web of moving tendrils that created what I can only describe as a root system for the pylon. Every leg split into branches, and that split into more and more, and they were all stretching so far down to the depths of the fog. I could still hear the thump getting louder and louder as the scene devolved into surreal, with the fog growing denser as the tendrils finally converged on a mass of colors that, while not an eye per se, certainly made me feel like I was being looked at. Like it was a sentient being, and it knew I was looking at it through the monitor. It saw me through the recording, through time and space itself. My heart rate increased, but the thumping was mismatched. Yet I was too mesmerized to truly gasp what was happening outside the monitor. As my nails burrowed into the arms of my chair, I felt the entity stretch beyond the recording. It was like I could feel its tendrils reaching through me, something past me. I could feel the static of it in my body. It prickled in my chest invasively. There was a flicker of red on the screen and Kix was knocked off balance. I think that's when it was hit, but I didn't have time to rewind and double check because at that exact moment I heard a crash behind me. The thumping noise. It hadn't been my heart at all. Kix was hovering a few feet in the air. This wasn't possible. Not only was it flying on its own, but it had knocked over the glass containing the red liquid as though on purpose. I sensed a kind of kinship between them, kicks and the liquid, its rotors whirred and sent the goo flying in all directions, breaking it apart, turning it into... into fog. I jumped out of my chair so fast I nearly tripped over my feet. The tendrils, the fog, the... the whatever you want to call it, it quickly enveloped the room. I ducked out of the research lab, reaching back to close the door and seal it shut. As I did, my forearm merely brushed a wisp of the fog, and I felt a searing heat, almost enough to knock me out. I felt the edges of my vision go dark, but the darkness was pushed away by adrenaline. My sole thought in that moment was to run to the infirmary. I pulled an emergency lever and didn't look back. The pain wasn't dulling. I didn't allow myself permission to look at the wound, not yet, but it was nothing short of agony. It was like something was splitting me right down to the soul, like I could feel my atoms pulling away one by one in a violent maelstrom, and with each separation, something else took its place. Something sharp and invisible, like microscopic Velcro. It was a thousand bee stings on every skin cell, and it was radiating outward. The infirmary was close. Three hallways away. Guards in hazmat gear ran past me. Good, I thought. They'd take care of the containment. Two hallways away. The lights turned off. One hallway away. The emergency power kicked on. Through the door. Dead. Stop. There were two hazmat suits on hospital beds, tripping red and pink and boiling away into steam. One of the doctors was holding his face, screaming bloody murder as his skin melted. The nurse was on the floor, holding what remained of her dissolving hands, and I suddenly became very aware that the guards weren't running to the tech lab, but away from the infirmary, away from the people turning into fog. I looked at my arm and felt sick to my stomach. I'd been exposed. 
I could see my bone. My flesh steamed, and the steam clung to the next bit of skin, repeating the process. My hand, I, I couldn't move my hand anymore. I turned to leave the infirmary because all I could think about was how much it hurt and how badly I needed to run, but the lockdown protocol had been activated at some time while I was standing there in shock. I looked at the nurse and the doctor in fruitless attempt at pleading for their help. There was nothing left of it either. Somehow, I couldn't help but feel like I'd caused this, like watching that video had awoken it. I slid along the wall, sobbing into my now only remaining hand, knowing I was going to die the most unrelenting and painful death imaginable. There was no blood, so no way to succumb to blood loss, just a slow, unweaving and corruption of my DNA. And just as I felt the life fading out of me, I heard the locks click open. Somehow I knew it wasn't my salvation. Whatever had unlocked the door had hijacked the system to let the infection spread out just a little farther. It was one more foothold. The world turned fog. Hello everyone. I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. Um, let me know specifically what you thought about the second one. We don't do a lot of sci-fi here on the channel, but when I read that one, I just thought this was really good, and I wanted to share it with everyone. I love Manon's storytelling. He's such an incredible writer, and I think he did sci-fi really, really well. Um, so let me know what you think. Maybe we'll do more sci-fi in the future. We'll see. Also, speaking of sci-fi, at the beginning of the video I mentioned The Graveyard Shift with Mr. Davis, my podcast, audio-only podcast, where you can listen to all my videos without the video, just to save on data, save on battery life, whatever. I'm thinking about doing shorter um, stories over there, but only for the podcast. Just because they're shorter, YouTube doesn't really like shorter videos, so I was thinking about doing shorter Maybe public domain horror stories over there. If you're interested in that, be sure to go down there. Follow the podcast on Spotify or Anchor, whichever you prefer. Now, I would like to thank all the $5 patrons members. While I'm doing that, let me know what you think about sci-fi stories in the future. Thank you to Absinthe Alice, Amethyst, Ametz, Anne, Barry, Publi Panda, Carolyn, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Furious Weasel, if in doubt, flat out. Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Fanning, Lee Riggs, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Mask, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New On Gum 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the continued support, and thank you to everyone who stopped by and listens to the podcast or watches the videos. It's greatly greatly appreciate it. Hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. As always, stay safe out there.